Hello, I'm Emily Bele, founder of Aspod and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich, and you're listening to The Wallet. Every week, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. Is it the right time to invest in the UK? What are small caps, mid cap, and large cap stocks? What exactly is the role of a fund manager? My guest today is Jean Roche, a fund manager with 20 years plus experience in the UK's small and mid caps. I'm really happy to welcome a female fund manager on the podcast, and please don't call her Jean, as so many have done in the past. In this episode, we discuss active investing, how to evaluate and pick stocks as a professional investor, the state of the economy, and how to approach investing in line with your values and ESG. Remember, the value of your investments can go down as well as up, and you may not get back all the money that you invest. Make sure you do your research. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, securities are for illustrative purposes only and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instruments, securities or adopt any investment strategy. Remember that we are not certified financial advisors. Information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Today you're a fund manager and for... Most people, you know, can you explain what's, uh, what's your job, please? Um, yeah, well, I, um, I thought you might ask me that question. So I just popped into HR before, uh, <laughs> before coming to meet you. Um, but, uh, seriously, I think, um, you know, really, what do I do every day? I buy and sell um, stocks um, for the benefit of clients whose long-term financial goals um, I am trying to help them with. So they're trying to achieve a certain return and they might have a certain risk appetite. In other words, um, whether they are happy for the, the value of their savings or investments to go up and down. Um, and along the way, I do things like talking to company management, um, looking at screens, looking at information, using my eyes and ears, noticing what people are liking, what consumers are saying, um, and just trying to make sense of a tsunami of information to then try and and um, invest people's money um, in the way I think will generate the the returns that they're after and that they need actually for their later life really. And today we'll we'll talk about your you know how you invest, how you look at these stocks, and. I mean, I think speaking with you and, and we met before recording this podcast, it was great to also link, you know, how you view the stock market to what's hap happened actually in the in the economy. So we, we will also talk about that. But can you start with giving us your approach to uh, to investing? Yeah, um, well, essentially what I'm doing is I'm trying to find um, shares in companies uh, where I think the um, price is too low yeah. um, and where I think... Um, so they're therefore they're underpriced and they could be in an exciting growth area. For example, at the moment, actually, what's very exciting, a very exciting growth area is airline travel again. Um, and actually, over the long term, we still expect airline travel to grow as the um, economy recovers, but also as a structural trend. Um, we see everyone back flying everywhere again, actually, interestingly. Um, and the price of tickets. Uh, yeah, exactly. And there we have pricing power as well. It's a concept we can talk about a bit later. Um, yeah, price has gone up hugely there and seemingly no pushback from consumers. So I might be looking at exciting growth stocks. They might be disruptors, you know, new inventing a new currency, the likes of, for example, Rightmove, whereas before all 
houses were sold via estate agents and through newspaper ads. And now you have to have your online ad. So they might be doing something new and completely different. And they'd have a maybe a higher price, but priced relative to their growth. They might be um, a good category of stock to look at. So that's the more exciting, growthy, new ideas. Or they might be a company that's been around for a longer time, but it's reinventing itself. So it's doing something different to how it used to do it. It's responding to market changes. It might be responding to people leaving, um, its competitors leaving the market, for example. And, um, you know, I think Dunelm would be a very good example of that. If it, And I will talk about that a little bit later if we talk about stock examples. That's a homewares company um, which reinvented itself. It never sold anything online or struggled to sell anything online 15 years ago and now is a leader in online homeware sales. And um, so there, stocks for me fall into two brackets. Um, I'll either be looking for the um, sort of unique um, growth stocks where you can't get exposure to that anywhere else. Um, it might, it's doing something different to everyone else, or it might be a company that's reinventing itself. We call those flex stocks. Um, so, my, and so my, my approach is, can the top line of this company grow um, from here? So from this starting point. And when you, when we look at the, I think it's important to, to, to talk a little bit about the size of the companies you're, you're focusing yeah. on because they tend to behave differently. So can you maybe explain why you're focusing on, you know, small and mid cap and what could be the difference with, uh, with larger uh, caps and what does that mean? Well, I think it's the um, information asymmetry with those um, small and mid caps. With large caps, you'll find, and, and by large caps, meaning um, companies with um, a large uh, uh, market capitalization. So it's the number of shares multiplied by the share price. So they tend to be, it, it doesn't always reflect the size of the business actually, but they tend to be just, you know, better known um, and larger, um, just have, be a larger company more generally. Um, but the, the reason I prefer to look at the small and mid cap side of th things is that um, these companies are less known, less well understood. They can be under the radar. They can be doing new things. Like I said, they can have very high margins. In other words, the profit divided by the sales can be much higher than it is for maybe a much more established industry. Um, and actually we see that over time, um, that they outperform, um, the large cap stocks. So they generate higher returns, but you asked about what the difference might be as well in terms of um, how, you know, is there a difference between investing in small and mid cap and large cap? And, and I think it's a more volatile ride as well, partly because fewer, it's more difficult to buy in and out of these companies because they're smaller. You almost, you might have to almost make a phone call to buy shares in, in a, in a company, whereas you wouldn't have to do that with a much larger company. The, what we call liquidity would be much better. Um, in a larger company potentially. So you might um, pay a bit more to buy a share in a smaller mid-cap company. Um, and, um, you know, so it's it's more difficult to just get in and out of it, but that's the challenge of it and that's the beauty of it. Um, and that, but that's what makes for potentially more ups and downs, but overall arriving in a higher place than you would if you were just looking at large companies. And you're, so you're focusing on these small and mid-caps um, in the UK. Can you tell us the difference you see, uh, you know, in the US versus UK market? Yeah, I mean, um, I think actually the the UK market is very well established. Um, the rules are um, and the regulations are very, um, you know, these these are the commonalities. Uh, you know, it's a very um, eminent market, as is the U US market. 
Um, they, where I see the differences, um, probably more of an emphasis on tech in the US, um, although the UK has many hidden tech gems and, and tech enablers. The US market can be more liquid just because it's a bigger market. There are more companies to buy into. I mean, it's a bigger economy. It has over 300 million as a population relative to our own population here of, well, we're not quite sure, but we think <laughs> 65, 70 million probably. So, you know, by definition, you would expect there to be more, more, just more choice potentially in the US. In some ways, the US will value stocks more highly than stocks get valued here. And that's a pe peculiarity, but that's the US versus the rest of the world. That's not just a UK versus US thing. But what's really interesting and what we've uncovered in our recent research is that you actually have more chance of making multiples of your money a prob higher probability of doing that in the UK than you do in the US. So the chances of picking what we call a multi-bagger, which is um, when you buy a stock for, say, a pound and um, sell it for £10 or make £10 return, you make 10 times or 20 times or 30 times your money. We call that a multi-bagger. Actually, but the proportion of multi-baggers in stocks you can actually invest in, in other words, stocks you can actually buy and sell shares in easily because there's enough liquidity in the shares, um, that's higher in the UK. And that's been a really exciting piece of research we've developed here over the last um, sort of 12 to 14 months and we're continuing to build on. Now, we didn't invent it here. Uh, the famous investor Peter Lynch talks about multi-baggers as well. And, and um, that's a very interesting um, topic, I think, for in uh, any listeners to go and, and read um, and listen to more podcasts about potentially. But I think what we're uncovering is that the UK has more than its fair share of these kinds of interesting companies that can deliver multiple returns to investors. And I think that's actually very surprising um, given, um, you know, that the UK market does tend to be talked down relative to the US um, and I was sad to see today that potentially Arm, the software company, um, may not choose London for its main listing. Um, and that's an exciting technology company. So, um, but, but, you know, I think the UK has, has many, many positive attributes. No, thank, thank you. So it's, uh, I think, I think great now that we, we understand a little bit what, what you're doing and we would call you an active investor. And I think when, most people, I mean, th this podcast is mostly for retail investors. All of you who are investing via your, your ISA, via your, your pensions and trying to pick your investments. And we know how challenging it can be, um, to try to replicate what Gene is doing at, at work and try to pick your investments. Can you, can you give me an, an explanation of active versus passive investing and, and, you know, not who should do what, because of course it's much easier for me to be a passive investor and maybe uh, leave the heartbeat in the hands of, of the active investors like you. Uh, but, but maybe what's the difference between active and passive investing? Um, yeah, and I, I think this is probably something, um, you know, it's a ho it's hotly debated topic, um, but to try and explain it in simple terms, um, active investors goal, and I'm an active investor, um, is to outperform the returns of a benchmark or index. And that benchmark or index is chosen at the beginning when the fund is created. So the investor knows what benchmark or index that the fund manager is trying to beat. Active investors will do things like speaking to management, will, uh, I think we'll talk a little bit about ESG later, will vote, will actively engage with the company and will actively 
decide on some shares over other shares. They will choose to avoid some and buy others. Um, and that's what we have got our three categories of shares. We have our uh, unique, our flex, and then our avoid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a passive investor will not have shares in an index that they will avoid. They will accept the market return and they will attempt to track an index. And actually going back to the question earlier about why I like UK small and mid caps is because actually from what I understand, and I've not worked in the passive investing side, it can be actually quite difficult to um, replicate some of the small and mid cap indices, which is where maybe active has its edge. But um, I will get off the soapbox on active <laughs> versus passive because we could be here for a lot longer than planned. <laughs> and you can listen to many previous episodes that we recorded about, you know, Warren Buffett and, and the advantages of, of being a passive investor when you're a retail investor. Uh, but still looking at, you know, active funds because that has a, a benefits also if you're looking at, you know, more specific um, exposure, for example, with, with your investments. Um, a question I get so often, and that's, you know, again, on a personal side is when do I buy and when do I sell my investments? I think that's really hard when you're an individual investor, but how do you do it as a professional um, investor? And what is your, you know, your sell discipline maybe with with stocks? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I think we all wish somebody would ring a bell and tell us when to buy and when to sell. Help me. So that's why we have to um, have certain... Um, what's called a process that we follow in order to decide when to buy and sell. But essentially what we're looking to do, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to buy low and sell high. Mm. Um, So how do we decide if a stock is lowly enough uh, priced in order to buy it? Um, Well, we'd have to decide first if it's the kind of stock that we like to own. And I mentioned if it has certain unique properties exposed to a unique structural part of the market, um, it might have founder management doing something new. It's in some way different to everything else, or it might be reinventing itself. It would fall into my flex category. So if it falls into one of my categories first and doesn't fall into my avoid category, which would be um, companies where, for example, I'm a bit concerned about the accounting where management have done a series of uh, value dis- destroying acquisitions or where the shares are just too high. Uh, I just think the valuation is outlandish relative to the growth prospects from this point on, um, then then I will be avoiding it. So I think um, when I'm buying, it'll be based mostly on valuation. Does this fit into the kind of valuation I'm comfortable with and can sleep at night with? Um, and then on sell, we are pretty strict, actually. We have, a, we have um, seven reasons to sell stocks and the top and best reason to sell a stock, and this is our process, is if it goes into the FTSE 100, we give it its pack lunch and we send it off and we wish it well because we do find that we get better opportunities coming through because in the small and mid-cap zone, companies tend to outperform and and a lot of their outperformance comes when they're smaller. And then once they get into the big league, some of them carry on being successful, but many of them actually fall out again. Mm. So that's that's our main a kind of goal is we're trying to buy stocks that we think can make it into the FTSE 100. And so we consider that a success if we're selling for that reason. We sell if companies are acquired because then we're, you know, we can't carry on holding the shares clearly. We'll sell if we see significant accounting irregularities or we have questions around the accounting um, and there's a, a very experienced accountant on the team, Andy Bruff, and his, well, he's well known for his um, accounting knowledge, depth of knowledge. 
um, and other um, team members as well with, um, I mentioned I've done the CFA um, qualification and other team members as well have that. So, you know, we're, we're always surrounded by big piles of uh, printed out uh, statements. And we'll also sell if, for example, sustainability behaviours are changing significantly. If we see a new corporate governance risk or environmental social risk emerging that we're not comfortable to wear the risk of, if there are value destroying acquisitions taking place, um, if valuation is too high, you know, we'll come to a point where, you know, we think that that it that 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 has played out, that the investment case has played out. Um, so yes, many reasons to sell. If we think that the company's over earning, um, that margins have reached peak where they should be in the cycle, um, we'll we'll move on and look for the next more attractively priced idea. Thank you. <laughs> and I'd love to to understand how so you talked about all these stocks, how do you pick these stocks? When do you buy? When do you sell? And now it's How do you actually package these investments? So what would be the difference between a fund, um, a trust, and how can people actually invest via these vehicles? Yeah, um, so I'm lead manager of an investment trust, and that is actually a company in itself. So if you wanted to invest in that in that vehicle, you'd buy shares in the investment trust itself. And it's closed, what we call closed-ended, which means it's a fixed pool of capital, so people can't put money in and out of it. Um, in in the way that they could with what's called a mutual fund. And with a fund, um, you can buy or sell shares in the, in the fund and the fund experiences flow. So it might change in value. So a simple example, if the fund is 100 million today, but an, an investor phones up and says, I want 5 million out, you'd have to hand it back to them. Whereas if in the investment trust, they can't take cash out of it, it's fixed capital. And if they wanted to sell it, they'd sell the shares in the trust. So with a fund, it's more like a bank account, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And with the trust, it's more you buy, you're buying a stake in a company, actually, which itself then invests in shares. And that might sound a bit complicated. And I think that's why actually a lot of people invest in investment trusts, which is a bit of a shame when they're a bit a bit older actually and more experienced in investing because it just takes a while for the penny to drop. And with an investment trust as well, you can have what's called gearing where you can borrow, uh, the trust itself can borrow because because the funds aren't going to be moving in and out. You can actually have a loan and then invest that loan on top of people's funds. So for example, you could raise a fund for a hundred million and then uh, borrow 10 million and put that in on top. And that would enhance that actually makes the um, the moves more extreme. It's it's like an extra um, kicker, if you like, on top. But um, that's probably a whole other podcast as well in terms <laughs> of investment trusts. And in fact, I'm thinking of people you can probably talk to about that to explain them better. But I'm excited about them because they generate longer returns than funds over the longer term. So I think that's something that people need to know about. Yeah, I think mm. it's I think it's it's really interesting to know the you know the different instruments and funds to you know be able to first look at you know what investment you already have potentially but also looking at building your portfolio where you actually start but unfortunately there's so much a jargon <laughs> in the industry that it can be really challenging for you know newbie investors to um, to actually get started you talked about the UK and I'd love to hear you know your feeling sentiments about, you know, what, how is the UK doing at the moment? 
what are people buying? How are people consuming? We know inflation is really high. We see people buying a lot, but at the same time struggling with their with their finances. So, w- where do you see growth, and what do you expect over over the the next month and years? Mm. Um, well, we were talking about on the way up here, weren't we? That um, everybody's traveling again now, and I mentioned, you know, that it, it's a, it's the structural growth area anyway. In other words people are spending more on experiences anyway mm-hmm. but that is really the standout for people they are want they were not able to travel for so long uh, both business and leisure travel and that is where you really see people spending their money now in a way that they weren't for the last few years so there's pent up demand but there's also as i said there's spend on experiences rather than stuff and it was interesting during the pandemic the spend went back to stuff because people couldn't have the experiences. But having said that, the clothes that go along with the travel, they are, people are spending money now on clothes as well, on sort of travel, going out clothes, work clothes, because having been at home, buying onesies or, you know, tracksuits and so on, and, you know, buying comfortable home clothes, the people's need, people need to wear something a bit different now as well. So I'm seeing mostly holidays, flights, and all the things around that, the magazine at WH Smith, the um, expensive pen, the food, you know, the expensive sandwich in the airport, yeah. that kind of thing. So anything related to travel uh, and auxiliaries and then clothing, again, related to returning to normal patterns of life. And then where's the spend coming out of? Well, well, where did we see huge spend was in drinking alcohol at home. That was massive over the pandemic. That's reversing out now. People are drinking out again. Yeah. And rather than, you know, as part of their supermarket basket and where else are they, they are not spending as much in, say, expensive restaurants. So they're definitely saving it for the the Ryanair flights, the EasyJet flights and so on. And even, you know, I think um, package holidays as well. Making sure that 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 happens seems to be key in people's minds. You talked about the UK economy. We talked about travel, eating in airport. How do you then link what's happening uh, in the economy with what's um, happening in the market? Let's say company performance, valuation, the price of a stock. Um, yeah, I think we had really um, a salient lesson actually last year, which was the, uh, which showed us with the UK being the best performing equity market globally, actually, that the UK economy does not equal the UK stock market. And then we talked about active investing um, and does not equal the portfolio either. So it all boils down to stock picking and knowing the different trends driving different companies, because actually what might drive a company is the um, for example, I'll give the example of watches of Switzerland. What what's driving that one? A big part of it is um, professionalization of jewelers in the US and the way watches are sold in the US. That's changing, and watches of Switzerland is making it a more deluxe uh, experience relative to what's going on there at the moment. So that may be a UK stock, but actually what's going on in the UK economy probably won't be reflected in how they do. Um, and then we had this, cla- this was a classic with ASOS in 2007 was growing like a weed and the market was about to crash and crash and crash. Um, but the PE divided by growth was only 0.7 for that stock at that time. And it was able to grow, outgrow everything. And meanwhile, the market, the, the economy was crashing about all our ears as those couple of years went on and that grew. So it's, you know, that 
economy does not equal stock performance. Um, I mean, there are some sectors that are more sensitive, maybe like the house builders, for example, where you might have to take a bit more of an account of that and take a more macro view. But there will always be company specifics that can surprise and delight and generate growth for uh, the fund and then for the investors in it. Thank you. Can you give me an example of one or two stocks which fit your philosophy, your values and your outlook? Um, yeah, with pleasure. Um, I think um, I talked about looking for top line growth and um, looking for a company that does something very unique, which drives that growth. And the one that comes up is Games Workshop, which for anyone who's not familiar, um, they make little plastic figurines that people paint and then set up as armies and then play as a, a sort of a st strategic board game with um, some dice and um, a measuring tape and um, one army fights against another. Um, and it's a very, I think, mindful pursuit. Actually, there was a Guardian article that called it heroin for the middle classes. I will not say whether I agree with that um, type of expression, but I think that explains you know, the, the, that this, this is a hobby. This is something people yeah. will, will pay quite a lot of money to do. It has high margins, generates very high returns on capital invested, um, has a very, it's a very simple business that can explain what it does. Um, and, um, it is, um, incredibly well managed, keeps aside any surplus cash talks about, for, I talked about selling stocks because, Um, management is destroying value by doing acquisitions. They talk about, we will generate value by not destroying value, by not wasting the capital that we have within the company. So this is a high margin business, generating high returns on capital, doing something utterly unique. And it is actually one of our 30 baggers. I'd love to talk about ESG, sustainability. I think it's in everybody's mind at the moment, but as we know, there can be a lot of You know, greenwashing. So how do you approach these um, ESG um, challenges um, within your investments and your portfolio? Uh, well, I think it makes sense to approach it with great caution. You mentioned about greenwashing um, because it can mean something different to everybody. I think it's easy to, it, it can be easily very subjective aside from some of the climate side of things. Mm -hmm. It is intrinsic to the investment process. You have to think about all aspects of it when you're investing because it's part of the risks of a company. Um, I think it's in its very, it's in its infancy. If you compare it with the accounting standards and how long it took to develop those, uh, and you might, you can find easily, if you look at third-party data, we have our own in-house systems as well, but you could look at three different systems, the MSCI, Sustainalytics, for example, you know, they, one of them might rate a company extreme risk, severe risk is the worst actually. And one might give it, a, a, the other might give it a double A rating. And you would say, how do you square those circles? It's because they're looking at different things. And so I think it's actually, it burst into the mainstream three years ago. And I think that it's still very much though um, in its infancy. I will take risks, I would say with ESG, I'll do things like I had holdings in defense stocks when many would say that that was not an area they would want to invest in. Um, but I felt it was part of um, 
a belief in Western democracy. That's a, a personal view. But then you choose which defence stocks you want to invest in as well. But I realised that there was a risk with that because um, some investors would av- actively avoid that. So it's, you know, what am I price am I prepared to pay knowing that some of investors might be avoiding this? But I, I saw them as inexpensive technology stocks, actually, with um, growth prospects. So I think we will take ESG risks within our fund. We will try and work out what they are. Um, but sometimes you can't, you know, you, sometimes the, the the booby trap lies. Well, that's the clues in the name. You weren't just least where you're expecting it. Um, but we would definitely try and take a, a view across each of the E, S and G, environmental, social and governance aspects and decide, you know, um, am I happy to, to take these risks on and then hopefully go in eyes wide open. Um, but yes, I, I think ESG will run and run and will keep developing. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what we learn next and how the discipline evolves. Thank you so much, Jean. That was a fascinating conversation. I'll invite everyone to follow you um, on social media, but also, you know, go and look at the fund's holdings. You publish, you know, a lot of updates on the fund. So that's always um, really interesting. Uh, even if you're not an active investor yourself, you don't need to, uh, but, but follow the update. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wallet. Please share this show with your friends and subscribe on your favorite platform. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps more people find our show. Well, that's a wrap on our season's final episode. We hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed creating it. We wanted to take a moment to say a big thank you to all our listeners who have been tuning in week after week. What's next? We're excited to announce that we have some fantastic exclusive series in the works that we can't wait to share with you. So stay tuned. And once again, thank you. We are thrilled to have you part of our community and we can't wait to keep bringing you more great content in the future.